Well, anyhow, as most of you know, my, um, my roots find themselves in Louisiana. I am a, a blend of uh, classy and not-so-classy French. Uh, the name actually uh, uh, was De La Housset. Kind of has a nice little twang to it. Although Cajuns always pronounce it De La Housset. That's why when my dad and two of the brothers moved to Los Angeles years ago, they thought De La didn't really sound L.A., so they changed it to Del Husay. Now, the reason I share that with you is because I, I do have these, these emotional roots in Louisiana. Whenever there's some good news that comes out of Louisiana, uh, other than all the, the, the painful calamities that seem to be coming out of Louisiana, I, I, I take note. And in 1997, a law professor named Catherine Shaw Spot uh, proposed a bill that actually passed into law in the state of Louisiana. What's interesting about this bill is a year later, in 1998, it passed here in Arizona. As a matter of fact, in the year 2001, it passed in Arkansas. They tried to pass in Oklahoma, but it died by one vote. And these are the only states that have passed it. All the other states are fighting over this thing. And I'm talking about the covenant marriage bill. This covenant marriage bill, it was really a, a provision to voluntarily, note, voluntarily raise your commitment level to your marriage. It was just to make it a little bit more difficult to get a divorce. This was really to answer something that came out of California in 1970. See, I keep thinking I could say something about California, but I, but I won't. But it's interesting that in 1970, the no-fault divorce became law in California... And it opened a floodgate to destruction of marriages all over the nation. And since the no-fault divorce, in other words, you can get a divorce for any reason, not just adultery, any reason at all, marriage has never been the same. People are redefining it now. People are rethinking it. People are not so sure they even want to participate in it. As a matter of fact, Pastor Jamie last week shared with you uh, a Proposition 102 that's going to be coming up that I, I hope you fully understand that all we're trying to do here is put in our Arizona Constitution a definition of marriage, a historical, biblical definition that marriage is between a man and a woman. Matter of fact, take a little look at this quick little spot. Marriage began in the heart of God, and He designed it perfectly for one man and one woman, a husband, a wife, a family, the building block of every community, every culture, every race, every nation. Governments have recognized and uniquely protected marriage for more than 2,000 years, so families can pass life to the next generation. In Arizona law, marriage is distinct and recognized as more than a mere legal arrangement between two adults. Marriage has a public status, protected in law, and held up as a social ideal. Because society recognizes the stabilizing influence of marriage on our culture, and the important economic benefits of strong and intact families. But today, that ideal is under an unrelenting attack. Activists are working tirelessly to redefine marriage, away from God's design, to favor individual desires. The push for same-sex marriage is also producing an historical crisis for the church. 
Today, in courtrooms across the country, in decisions as recently as last month, our constitutional guarantee of religious liberty is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with an aggressive social agenda, and religious liberty is losing. Judges in California and Massachusetts have redefined marriage, and virtually every area of ministry is coming under legal attack, threatening the ability to freely follow the faith. Christian adoption agencies, religious schools, Christian professionals, doctors, and businesses, even the church and its leaders. Each will be a new battleground over promoting same-sex relationships against their church's teaching, even their own consciences, with the full weight of the law standing against them. Already, these sweeping changes are moving from the courtroom to the classroom. In Arizona schools today, teachers are being told to stop using the words mother and father. Across the country, elementary school children are being taught to equate homosexuality with heterosexuality. And parents' rights to object to this indoctrination are being trumped by the new political reality. Prop 102 is Arizona's last chance to secure the definition of marriage in the Arizona Constitution. Without constitutional protection, Arizona's marriage laws are vulnerable to activist judges, politicians, and special interest groups. This election gives Arizonans the opportunity to take a stand for God's design to preserve in our Constitution the definition of one man and one woman. That's marriage. When you vote, say yes to keep the definition of marriage simple and clear. One man, one woman. That's marriage. Please vote yes on Prop 102. This morning I want to share with you from the scriptures why this is so important. Why we ought to take this very, very seriously. What's already in law, as I mentioned, back in 1998 was voted this covenant marriage bill. All the bill is, is that if you marry, you can voluntarily make it a covenant marriage. And all that means is that if you run into some hard times, you'll get some help, and you'll wait at least two years before you can sue for a no-fault divorce. Now, now adultery is a whole different issue. But the fact is, all it is is that you're willing to wait two years for a cooling-off period and get some help before you would sue for no-fault divorce. Now, what is interesting to me is not the battle among the states over this very simple bill, which is voluntary for anybody. What is interesting to me is the hesitation of Christians to embrace this bill, to embrace this. Most Christians, I know when I, I do weddings, I still do weddings, that they are resistant to make this higher commitment of this higher level of this understanding of this commitment to marriage. Why, why, why do even believers hesitate for this thing? Well, the answer is simple. It's the same reason that a lot of folks in our generation and the next generation just don't want to get married. You do know that our state, the state of Arizona, we were the first state to vote down the first marriage amendment defining marriage between a man and a woman. And the reason was because there was a whole lot of folks in our state that weren't too sure they even wanted to get married. The reason is fear. And why are people afraid to get married? Well, what if it doesn't work? It didn't work from a parents. Over 50% of parents, families have been divorced. 
What, why would we think for a moment, if we're one of the kids now grown up, to think that our marriage would work? Fear usually comes from ignorance, and it's really an ignorance to what marriage is, is all about. Why, why make a commitment to something I'm not really sure I even understand? I mean, isn't marriage, uh, the purpose of marriage, my happiness and my eternal bliss? Or, or is there something else that's supposed to be going on here for marriage? Now, for those of us who are married, why do we continue to be married? There's all kinds of reasons not to be. Holly and I, in our 38 years, there's been many times Holly has challenged my DNA, and I've wondered about her heritage. I mean, if we could have, there's an open window, we would have thrown each other through it a long time ago. But we are still married because we understand what marriage is all about. I, I've heard it asked, well, what's in a piece of paper? The answer is simple. It's a testimony of a covenant. But a covenant... To what? If you will, open your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And I want you to see the origin of marriage. Here in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the first man, creates the first woman, brings them together. We have the account beginning in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone, but I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds, sky, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept took one of the ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fastened to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and he brought her to the man. The Hebrew word for, for man is ish. God creates isha. Isha is brought to ish, to the man. And the man goes, wow! Which in the Hebrew is translated, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called isha, woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, right after God creates the first man and the first woman, the first thought God has is marriage. Look at verse 24. For this cause, the creation of a man, the creation of a woman, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and his mother and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. For this cause, the two became one flesh. Have you ever wondered why in the Old Testament, the Hebrew canon, that the punishment for adultery is exactly the same as the punishment for murder? Has that ever bothered any of you? I know it's bothered me. There's many things I read in the scripture. I think, whoa, 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 a second, Lord. I don't know if I fully understand or even agree with that. But I've learned that every time I disagree with God, I, I tend to be wrong. But in Leviticus 24, listen to verse 17. Here's the law of Moses in the Hebrew text. It says, And if a man takes a life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. 
So according to the Mosaic Code, if, if, if a human being, if a man takes the life of another human being, he, the penalty is capital punishment. He is to pay with his life. Now, now the reason for that, we're given in Genesis chapter 9. Because in Genesis 9, it says this in verse 6, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. If a man takes a life, man has the right to take that man's life. Here's the reason. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. The reason the penalty for murder is the penalty of death is because in an act of murder, you destroy one who bears the image of God. Now, what is interesting to me is when I go to Leviticus chapter 20, I find it's the exact same penalty for adultery. Look at verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery in his friend's wife, with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely, it's the same Hebrew phrase, be put to death. Now, on one hand, I guess I, I, I'm glad we're not under a mosaic code because that sure take care of a population problem. <laughs> we're under an age of grace right now. But that doesn't turn what God says as far as His intention. Now, how could God ever say that, that committing adultery, which in this context would destroy a marriage, how could God ever say the destruction of a marriage is as serious as the destruction as of a human life? So that both have the same penalty. Unless somehow the same thing is destroyed by both actions. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this passage. If there's any good commentary, I think I would like to go with the one Jesus wrote on this. And in Matthew chapter 19, turn there if you love God, he says this. And in verses 4 to 7, this is Jesus explaining the very text we just read in Genesis chapter 2. But he goes back to Genesis 1.27 first when it says, And God made man in his own image. Both male and female, he made mankind in his own image. Listen to what he says. Pick it up in verse 4. And after these, these, these uh, Jewish leaders trying to test him said, Well, what about this marriage thing? Jesus said, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis 1.27. But now he goes directly to chapter 2, verse 24, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now all he's doing is quoting Genesis 2.24. Now Jesus is going to explain to us exactly what Genesis 2.24 means. Look at the next verse. Consequently. They are no more two. He's explaining the two becoming one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, two becoming one flesh, no longer being two, but one flesh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They shall become one flesh. Now, what's, what's, what's he talking about here? When, when two people, a man and a woman, marry, somehow they become one flesh. Now, I always thought that meant they're children. 
That literally, you know, your DNA blends together and your children basically become your one flesh. So he's talking about your children here. But he can't be talking about the children because he says, uh, consequently, they're no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Is God saying, don't let anybody cut your children in half? They don't let anybody separate your children into two pieces? It can't refer to children. Other commentators say, well, when he talks about marriage and the two become one flesh, he's talking about the, the, the intimacy in marriage, the sexual intimacy. But then, is again, is he saying that what God has brought together for you to enjoy sexual intimacy, let no man keep you from that kind of intimacy? No, that's not at all what he says, because he says they're no longer two, but one flesh. Now, I'm into intimacy, but you got to get out of the bedroom eventually and become two again, right? So he's not talking about intimacy here. He's not talking about children. He's not talking about intimacy. Well, then what in the world is he talking about? Well, he says the two will become one flesh. Notice it says what God joins together. God has created something new here. And God has created, taken the two, and out of the two, He's created one. One flesh that now bears the image of God. When the two become one, the two are no longer singly made in the image of God. There is something brand new created where the two now create a new being, a being consisting of two that more clearly will manifest the beauty of the very image of God. Remember when Moses asked the question, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that uh, we're supposed to glorify God with our body. Remember? Uh, don't you know you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So, all right, let's all glorify God with our bodies. It's one of those things that sometimes we Christians, we settle for the language. As long as I can speak the language, I think I, I have it all together, and we don't have a clue what we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God wants to be known. Psalm 19 says, the heavens and the earth, everything he creates declares his glory. Now exactly, what is that? And remember, I'm so glad Moses asked the question. We talked about this before, previously. But remember in Exodus 33, Moses is in deep trouble because children of Israel, they're doing the idol party thing. Moses has just busted all ten of the commandments. I mean, literally broke them by casting them on the ground. He thinks God's going to kill him like bad sweat in the desert. And so he says, God, what are you going to do? I need to know what you're going to do, what you're like. And that's when Moses says, God, show me your glory. Now, what is Moses asking God when he says, God, show me your glory? Everyone has glory. It's identical to your name. It's used synonymously in chapter 34. God's glory, God's name, God's name, God's glory. It's what is it about you you want known? That's your glory. That's your name. What is it that you want people to know about you first? It's your reputation. So what Moses is saying, God, what is it that you want about yourself known to us first? And that's when God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And he says, I want you to know what my goodness actually looks like. 
So in chapter 34, he does it. He causes his glory, his name to be declared, his, to pass right by Moses. And God says, let me tell you what my goodness looks like. He says, you will see compassion. You will see graciousness. You will see slowed anger. You will see forgiveness. You will see truth. And you will see, remember the Hebrew word, hesed. Loving kindness. Loving kindness is when you move towards someone and all that's on your mind is their well-being. Their well-being. God will list those as being what his goodness looks like. That's what God wants human beings to know first about himself, about his compassion, his grace, slow to anger, his forgiveness, his truth, and his loving kindness. Now, where are these seen? Can you see graciousness outside of relationship? Can you crawl into a closet and watch and observe compassion? Can you have the experience of forgiveness all by yourself? These are all literally seen in relationship. In relationship. Have you ever wondered why there's a trinity? I know, I, I, I wake up in the middle of the night with strange questions, and that's why I do what I do. I mean, first of all, the Trinity is so hard to explain. I mean, God, do you understand how tough it is, it is to explain to people? People say we believe in three gods, or we believe in a three-headed God. God, why, why can't it be easier to explain? But, but well, what if Sigmund Freud was right? There is no God. We create gods out of our own definitions, out of our own emotional needs. We create gods. Of course, then my question is, well, why would I create a God I can't understand nor explain? See, the fact that God is Trinity is probably the very evidence that that's who He really is because we can't fully understand it, nor can we fully explain it. But why would the Godhead be a Trinity? The answer is because God has life within Himself. What was the first not good of creation? He creates the man, and he doesn't say, man's not good, I can do better than that. We'll create you ladies and really make you sharp. Now, I know you ladies think that's the interpretation, but that's not. Basically, he says it's not good for man to be, because being alone, he could not have life. Because life is relational. In John 17, verse 2, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I've come that they might have eternal life. And this is the eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom they sent. The essence of living is relationship. Because it's only in relationship you ever experience compassion and graciousness and forgiveness and slow to anger and truth and indeed loving kindness. God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, God has life within Himself because He has relationship within Himself. And that's why when He created the first man, He says it's not good. The man cannot have life within himself unless there's a plurality and he creates the first woman so that there could be life it's very interesting it's not good it's not good for man to be alone the concept in scripture of death the word is thanatos uh, we get the study of death thanatology from this and the word thanatos means separation isolation it's deathness when we move from relationship because it is moving away from the experience of life. Now God's image 
is seen in relationship. God's glory, His name, the beauty of who He is, is seen in relationship. Now, God's image was clearly seen in His Son, Colossians 1.15, that the, the Son is the visible image of the invisible God. We had a chance to see what the invisible God was like, His glory, by watching His visible image lived out in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we saw it lived out. We saw God's grace and compassion and slow to anger and forgiveness and truth and loving kindness only as Jesus what? Related to other human beings in relationship. Now, Jesus, He ascends. He's with the Father. He's enjoying relationship with the Father and the Spirit as we speak. But now he has left us and we are to glorify God because we as individuals bear his image. But then when we marry in a covenant of marriage, God does a whole new creation. What God joins together, he creates a new one flesh and that new one flesh bears the very image of God. There's a capacity to more clearly manifest the beauty of what God's like in the preciousness of no other relationship as clearly as a relationship of marriage. When people observe how a husband treats his wife, how a wife responds and loves in return, they have a beautiful, clear microcosm to be able to see the very beauty of what God is really like, the very image of God, the very glory of God being seen in the relationship of marriage itself. Do you remember when that lawyer in Matthew 22 comes to Jesus? And he says, um, 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 Jesus, what's, what's, what's the most important thing God ever said? Remember? And Jesus says, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and love your neighbors yourself. And remember, the, the lawyer starts walking away. Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. These two, not one, not just loving God, but loving another. These two, all the laws, all the prophets, they stand on these two. Now, what's interesting, that's what Jesus said. But then when I I study the book of Galatians, I come to chapter 5, Paul makes the statement, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? You want to fulfill the entire law? He said, then love your neighbor as yourself. Say, wait a second, Paul, you forgot the first part. Well, Paul forgot the first part. James does too. Because in James chapter 2, verse 8, he says, now you want to fulfill the royal law of God? You do that by loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, did Paul and James, did they have just kind of a a senior moment and they kind of forgot the first part of what Jesus said? No, 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 no. They understand exactly what Jesus said. Everybody's running around saying they love God, love God. Everybody loves God. God says, I'm going to tell you how I want you to love me. You will love me by loving my own. You know, as as a father of grown children, I actually understand that. I never feel more loved than when people are loving my children. You love my kids, you love my grandkids, I feel loved. So it is with our Heavenly Father. God says, stop babbling along about how much you love me. Why don't you love me by loving my own children? Now, why would that be so important to God that He says, if you're going to love me the way you will love, First, first John chapter 4, don't be saying you love me who's invisible. When you can't love your brother, you hate your brother who you see. The reason is because God says, I am loved when my glory is seen, and my glory is seen clearly when my beauty of my compassion and grace and forgiveness and long-suffering, when all of that is seen where? When you are loving your neighbor. 
That's when you're glorifying God. And the closest neighbor and the most precious relationship, it's your husband and wife. It's a marriage. The goodness of God is seen in relationship. The purpose of marriage is not happiness. You, you know the root of happiness. You take that root, you can put it on hard, and it's haphazard. Happiness, hap, all it means is by chance. When things are going great by chance, that's happy. Things aren't going great by chance, that's haphazard. There's something more than just my marriage, the purpose of my marriage has something to do with chance. So why, 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 does, why would Holly and I hang in there after 38 years? And like I said, I, I'm French. She, she, she's British. And any of you know us, the war continues in my home. So why do we stay married? I'll tell you why. To destroy marriage is to destroy that which bears the image of God. And to do so is not much different than taking the life in the sight of God. That's why the penalty for adultery in the Mosaic Code was exactly the same as the penalty for murder. Because you're doing the same thing. You're destroying one that bears and can show the beauty of the image of God. The preciousness of His graciousness and compassion, His forgiveness, His slow to anger, all those beautiful things of loving kindness that God wants people to see and can most clearly be seen in a relationship of marriage. I am not going to murder my marriage. Something God has joined together and made something, a new one flesh, that bears his image more clearly than his image born even in me as an individual. That's why we get married, by the way. And that's why we stay married. Here's the reason why you marry. Here's the reason why we stay married. Now, as a pastor, I'm sitting there, and some of you, and I got good friends, that are not married. And you're sitting there going... Boy, this was a great message. Well, I say, first of all, if you're not married, you want to get, get married. But you say, well, I want to get married. It's just all the toads around me don't want to get married. And what do you do? You are still made in the image of God. You can still manifest the beauty of God's glory, but you still do it in precious relationships. So if you're not married, I hope you do have some covenant precious relationships whether it be cousins, whether it be parents, whether it be uh, aunt, uh, uh, nephews and nieces, whether it be close, close friends, I hope there's some covenant relationships so the beauty of God's glory can be shown even in the beauty of those relationships. Now you may be here this morning saying, oh my, but I've been divorced. Maybe you've been divorced two, three, four, five times. What am I going to do? And the answer is simple. What part of 1 John 1, 9 do you not understand? God is fully aware of our weaknesses, and God is fully aware of our rebelliousness. But when we humble ourselves and confess, say the same thing, hamalekao is the word, agree and just tell the truth what we've done. God, I destroyed the one flesh that you joined together, and God, it was sinned against you, because I could have shown the beauty of your forgiveness. I could have shown the beauty of your name. And I didn't. Or it was taken away from me. What does Psalm 103 say? Your compassionate Father will remove your sins from you as far as what? He's from the West. 
Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God says, I'll forgive your sins and your iniquities. I will remember no more. Do you know what is more godlike to forget than to remember, ladies, everything we've ever done in 38 years? But that's, I, I diverse. The fact is, and Holly's not here till the third service, so I'll save it for that one. The fact is, is forgiveness. Of course, God, if we humble ourselves, but let's confess it as sin. Stop rationalizing, justifying your divorce of 10, 20, 30 years ago. Let's just be honest, be honest before God. You permitted the one flesh that he joined together to be destroyed. Praise God, we're not under the Mosaic Code. That God forgives and gives grace and mercy. But now you know why we marry. Now you know why we stay married. Our marriage is something bigger than us. It is a called covenant to God to manifest something as beautiful as His glory in the clearest way it can be manifested. So if you're here this morning and you're really hurt in your marriage and you're wondering, give me one good reason to stay with this man. Give me one good reason to stay with this woman. You have your reason. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would understand that whenever we obey you and we live up to the covenants we've made, even when it is so hard, sacrificial, you will honor us if we humble ourselves. Lord, you heal marriages. You create such happiness and joy. And so, Father, when we hit the valleys, may we not bail out of covenants that we've made. But, Father, may we trust you to bring healing for your name, for your glory. So, once again, people might see the beauty of who you are in the way I treat Holly and the way Holly treats me. And the way we treat those who are one flesh. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.